building the biggest homes in the world. McMansions, they're supersized and we're loving them. A local neighborhood is in an uproar over what some call an invasion. What are they talking about? A string of brand new large McMansions being built in their community. McMansion. McMansion. McMansions. Go get your McMansion, you know. Welcome to the September 13, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. As you probably figured out, we're going to be talking about those massive new homes often built on the site of previous much smaller homes. And guess who we have in the studio this week? No other than Kate Wagner of McMansion Hell. We've invited her here to discuss the pleasure of criticizing these architectural Frankensteins. Kate's passionate, she's funny, and she knows what she likes. Hi, Kate. Hello. So this is, of course, Kate is better known as McMansion Hell. That's right. Okay, so how did McMansion Hell happen? Happen. Yeah, I wondered that myself, frankly. Uh, Actually, I just started this blog when I was in between my last year of undergrad and my first year of grad school, because I was bored in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I have other blogs, too, that are not popular or cool. One is where I just reblog pictures of architecture that I like on Tumblr, and the other one is devoted to my classical record collection. Okay. Both of those things are super lame. But anyways, I was like, I'm going to do an ugly house blog. I think that's kind of awesome. I think it's fun. Yeah. But uh, I was like, I think I'm going to do an an ugly house blog. Okay, so now when you start a blog like that, I always find that people, like, something pushes them to do that. There must have been one thing that you were like, okay, I've had enough. This needs to happen. I was just shocked that there wasn't one. I was just like, I cannot believe someone has not like just like called out these like terrible houses outside of like pejorative journalism. Because the term McMansion is just yeah, like, which is a everywhere. thing that people call them. But no one explained like what it meant. And it really didn't mean anything. It's just like a big, ugly house. But I was like, okay, we got to like take this and... It, there's the potential for humor is is so large here and i never even thought about it just like getting famous like i never anticipated right. that would happen but i just wanted to make fun of these houses i thought that they were hilarious right like i thought well, that they there are was, hilarious there's something to be learned from them like i feel like they tell us a lot about like american culture you know what i was thinking of because you know i'm really obsessed with this kind of especially the suburban aesthetic oh this yeah kind of, that was like sort of came out of like arts and crafts even a little bit like that whole you know it's like everyone pretends they're living in a park you know <laughs> like that's you know that's the fantasy right it's like yeah the olmstead parks are really fun until you see the drainage but one of the things that kills me about it it's like we talk about big mansions i mean obviously that's sort of you know that's the big you know trouble in architecture it feels like in some ways like you know <laughs> right now it's like the scourge because in this case it's the wealthy that are patronizing it's that's not even like people that it. don't have resources you yeah. know what i mean so now why are we here? What got us here, Kate? To McMansion Hell? Yeah. Oh, man. God, I don't know if we have enough time for that. But basically, I mean, I really think that it's it's just kind of like fundamental to the idea of sprawl to begin with, like as an mm. urban planning concept. Uh, and I also think that part of it is like as to why the houses got so big and mm-hmm. where they got their aesthetics from. Well, I think you can really link it to like socioeconomic changes. Uh, so like the beginning of like deregulation of mortgages. So the mortgage interest rate deduction in the late 70s or in the 70s, and then sort of shortly after you started seeing bigger houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more kind of like a, a cultural change in attitude from the house as being like uh, like a permanent asset to being like a source of, of wealth. 
Right. Uh, they're really like the kind of like financialization of housing really did kind of drive like this idea that a house is for buying and selling and not necessarily for living in. And these houses essentially are built to like tick all the boxes of buying and selling. But as far as the aesthetics are concerned, a lot of it comes from so the wealthy, like like Hollywood mm-hmm. people, for example, have always had like kind of tacky houses. Right. Uh, like you know that there's this book by Charles Jenks, the architectural historian, yep. called Daydream Houses of Los Angeles, and it's a really obscure book by him. But it was uh, from 1978, I think, and. The book basically just like trashes Hollywood houses as being like really tacky. It's like proto McMansion hell, and it's a <laughs> so great. That, it's that's so part funny. Of your one of one of the houses is he calls it topiary fascist, <laughs> and I like roll every time. It's so funny. Topiary fascist sounds like it could be a lot of things, nowadays. but it looks like a like fascist architecture, and it has topiaries in front of it. It's so it's like this. I like they tried to combine like. French garden styles with like sort of neo-formalist or like formalist architecture and it just ended up looking like really fascist. I love it. We were five minutes into our interview and we were already talking about fascism and architecture. But I asked her why some architectural styles used for McMansions seem to echo the times of kings when most of us would have probably been living not so grand lifestyles. Oh, I have a theory it's about like this. It's like the whitest architectural style. It's in not the even world. just like the whitest. It's like uh, times when like there was like such huge oppression of right. pretty much most people, like peasants. Right. Uh, I mean, like the French Revolution happened because you know all the kings in Versailles, which like all these dictators and like McMansion people based their aesthetics off of, right. were just like building Versailles and like having lavish parties while everyone starved. And, like, and that was that's what people are tax- emulating. Exactly. It's exactly like that. It's like you charge taxes and they all just go to wealthy people who just, like, have parties and everyone starves. It's like, wow, it's almost like we're living in, like, pre-French Revolution times. I wonder what's going to happen. Hopefully something good. <laughs> uh, but, but, yeah, I but mean, it's totally that. It's like an, it's it's oppression like, is, like, the key theme there. Right? Because it's not like someone's going, oh, let's, you know, let's build off, you know, Mughal architecture. Or something, you know. You know that the, happens the, maybe sometimes. the exception is is like it was just super appropriative. By the way, is like Adobe McMansions right. in Arizona, which is right. just like a whole other level of like unpacking that is like someone in post-colonial studies should definitely take a look at. I'm from the South, and so every uh, people in the South are just generally like they don't care about that stuff. But I took. When I was in undergrad in ethnomusicology, it was like how to be ethical when studying other people. Mm-hmm. And like any kind of like ethno related, like I guess like uh, anything related to like other people's cultures. And so it's just like we read about like uh, Edward Said and like post colonial yeah. theory. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, actually there's like real like material. Cause people, they throw out all those like terms like cultural appropriation and stuff in the news and like they don't attach them to any real thought. That's just like a name that it becomes right. that people call. But like actually understanding how it works and how that appropriation works is rooted in a very physical and economic thing. You're actually like extracting profit from other people's cultures while also like subjugating them and like erasing them. I mean, yeah, you can't, like, profiting over, like, people who you've oppressed is just, like, generally, like, a theme in capitalism. But, right. like, man, the Adobe McMansions just take it so far. It's so, like, I'm just, like, man, anyone who went to college, like, and took, like, one, like, liberal arts class would just see that this is a problem. So why do you think there aren't more architectural styles? I mean, for a country that's so, like, large and quote-unquote diverse, yeah. you know, and, and wealthy, it always like surprises me why it's the same friggin' styles that get repeated again and again, and it just becomes like a mix, right? It's not like people are like being very creative. Why? I think part of that is just because you know the way that 
property works in the mm-hmm. country like you want uh when you build something you want it to be profitable you want it to be saleable if mm-hmm. you're building like a condo or like a you know an art museum even you want it to be a selling point and so because of that like things tend to just conform to one style mm-hmm. and we don't really move past it um i mean that kind of happened with modernism even during postmodernism there was like neo-modernism, which was just basically the architecture of big banks and like right. financial firms. Right. And now it's like spread to condos and you see all the neo-modern condos. And it's like, what do we even call this? Is it modernism? Like, do you want to call no. it like, so it's still just modern architecture, but it's just like this faceless and bland architecture that is completely forgettable. Unlike actual modernism, which was quite memorable, if I uh, do say so myself, <laughs> uh, I'm definitely not going to forget, you know, the Villa Savoie or, right. you know, Falling Water or anything like that, uh, or even like the Schindler House or any of these deep cuts of, of modernism. We're having so much fun. I wanted to get her take on some of the elements that drive me insane when it comes to McMansions. I mean, there are some parts that make no sense. First off, moldings. Why is there always so much? God, I'll tell you what, molding is just like something that is never going away. And it's funny because like so many houses don't have molding. Right. Uh, So molding was like super useless. I mean, when we were building all those post-war houses for white people when they moved to the suburbs after World War II, it was just like, let's build a house as cheaply and efficiently as possible and we will make it cute as hell. Uh, Mm. And people will go, and they are cute. They are so sweet. Those little minimal traditional houses from the, the first the thirties and then the forties the and early fifties. It's just like they're so sweet and compact and cute and the use of space is so clever and efficient. But there's no molding in there. Uh, there right. might be baseboards. Right. But there's no crown crown molding, so to speak. No. But crown molding is just like something that n- people don't necessarily like put in when they first buy a house. I, but why, why is it so prevalent in these McMansions? Because I think that, you know, in the more it's it's a status symbol. Like I mean, you can answer this question the same way. I mean, these McMansions, they borrow from a lot of architectural styles, but most of them, if not all of them, have classicism in in common. And so they borrow, like, random classical elements. And also, like, HGTV, like, forever was, like, if you put crown molding and you add, like, $3,500 to the value of your house. Oh, so it's really, it really comes down to that. It's, like, so much of it is just wrapped in, like, of like a very absurd like economy of of house buying and selling that is like really rooted in like the first the savings and loans crisis of mm-hmm. the 80s and then later in like the what led to the great recession where like I don't think we've I think we've sort of forgotten how insane the cultural attitude towards buying and selling houses was during that time right people were literally buying houses to sell them like yeah they were no, like no, it's no. like you can't have this thing that you want and you because could sell it's not anything. gonna sell it felt like you could you sell could. anything for a while you could and if you had all it was just i mean the mcmansions come about because you're just uh it's a conglomerate of different saleable features i mean like the two-story foyer is like that's expensive adds value to the house right, right, and it's right. just like not even understanding that these things are contingent on like cultural tastes so when they change then no one's gonna buy the house but nothing was ever going to go wrong i think people like forget at how much people really believe that nothing bad was going to happen to the housing market next juliet balconies have you seen the ones where they're inside Yes. Oh, <laughs> like in the foyer. Yeah, no, in, yes. the, in like the gray room where it's yes. like someone's like, That's right. someone's just like, I would just totally be using that to just like annoy the crap out of people. But why are they, why are they there? Like, what's the appeal of them? Because I mean, like even what people. What is the appeal of cutouts in general? Like right. is what I want to know. I mean, 
really like a Juliet balcony indoors is just a void. Right. Uh, that's uh, got a like a railing on it, or like but an so, outdoor. An outdoors, but, like what's but the where's appeal? the genealogy of that? I'm trying to figure out like where's that come from? Hollywood. But what what in Hollywood? Like I can't even I mean, figure out like what's this, the reference. I mean, it's funny because you know wrought iron balconies, yeah. which I guess are like kind of the classic. Uh, like I guess this is sort of where they come from. Also, like vaguely European architecture in general has lots of like mm. Juliet balconies, like you know Italian. Like you go in an Olive Garden and you see a painting of an Italian house. Right. Oh right. It's like there a, it's a are. very like aestheticized and like. De, uh, like dis- a, disconnected. in a village, Italian Yeah, village. exactly. Right. It's like a very disconnected like architectural feature that's found mostly in representations of houses, right. more so than it is in actual like historic houses. Because I always think, aren't those... Were, it's kind of from the Tudor period, too. Did, yeah. weren't they, did they used to be called like widow's balconies or no, something? No, widow's walks are on the widow's top of walks. houses. Right, right, right. The, like, they're at the top of like beach houses, so you can see okay. how that's a, a widow's walk. But Juliet balconies are just like fake balconies right? where there's actually no place that you can actually because like, I see them on condos now. Oh, it's so funny, and it's I think like, it's just there's like, a building down the street here. I saw it, and I was like, "Those are Juliet." Like each unit has a Juliet balcony. I was like, "Who? What?" It was What's... just you can open your big doors and get like a lot of air. In. No, it's a small door. What? That's what I mean. What? I don't understand. I don't understand. Maybe it's this just whole. like the allure of going outside. It's like you'll you're not gonna go outside, but if you wanted to, you could get a taste of outside. Well, it might be also what you're saying. It's sort of like it's one of those things that someone's like, "Oh, does it have outdoor space?" check that's actually like i mean for condos i'm sure that's what yeah, it is right? like it's like it's got outdoor space and you can't even put like a tiny succulent out there that's I mean, right like it's just, it's just i don't just know make what it, it is. a big window i don't know then i had to ask her about a piece she published in vox last month titled get this betsy devos's summer house deserves a special place in mcmansion hell and in case the title wasn't clear she's not a big fan And if you haven't seen the house itself, I suggest you Google it. The Education Secretary of the United States has very unusual architectural tastes. There's so much. I know, there's There's so so much much material. But basically, I mean, this house is just so absurd because it makes no sense at all. I mean, every time I look at it, it's just like, who thought this was a house? Like, who was like, I have an ideal platonic image of a house in my mind, and this is what comes out. With that this much money. Yeah. I don't understand. That's Just, the part that blows my mind. That's why architects hate McMansions, because, like, back in the day, as you probably know, running hyperallergic, architecture has always been kind of fueled, especially residential architecture, by wealthy people, like, patronizing architects. Yeah, like, sure. being like, build me the next coolest and best thing. And that's how they would just, like, advance right. their art. That's, that's why architecture history occurs in a vacuum that basically ignores everybody else's houses. Right. So I'm, I'm like, saying, does Bessie DeVos show up and go, hey, I want some tacky um, architect who just does whatever I want I feel like this was actually, a, a, like, two bill builders Two building companies, not like, like competing. A, not yeah, I guess I have no idea. But <laughs> like, I found two windows. names and I didn't know either of them. And one of them said builders, and the other one just like said design. So I didn't know if that was the interior designer or the architect. But I, I sure hope that this is not done by an architect because if it does, like the AIA needs to get involved with licensure for most houses. Builders do a great job. Like most right. houses are perfectly lovely and enjoyable and right. special and good. And my parents' house was built by a builder and I loved growing up there. But in these specific scenarios, like these dream home scenarios, it is just too many cooks in the kitchen and the and when you just have let let the client have free reign with and not like being able to tell them, hey, you maybe should like consider this, or even standing up to them in any real big way. 
I mean, there are just things on this house that are just an atrocity. Okay, let's go through them. Okay, so, so the one that caught my eye immediately was, of course, this turret that looks like an, a lighthouse is, that is trying to escape from its Siamese twin. Uh <laughs> It's like, it's just, it looks like it's just trying to pull itself apart, playing like, free me, please, I want to be a lighthouse. Maybe it's masticizing. Yeah, maybe. And then that, like, what's that weird, like, eyelet window? Eyebrow. It's an eyebrow dormer. It's an eyebrow. It's for extra superciliousness. Because, you know, rich people love uh, eyebrow dormers because they were like, raise their eyebrows at poor people being like, how are you poor? <laughs> Do better. Oh, no. Okay, so now let's, uh, what else? So oh, now my this... God. So the one thing that, like, really drives me up a wall, probably more than, like, anything else on this house, is the cornices don't match anywhere. Yeah, why? They're, like, they have the brackets uh, under, like, the eaves. Or, I just saw in the, that. In the cornice, like, they're different on every part of the house, and they, they, like, the roof doesn't line up at all. Like, there's a part of the house where I'm, like, I have no idea how it connects to the so, other part of the house. It, part of me feels like, like somebody who just read Harry Potter designed this house, like, while on acid or something. I, I don't know. I, I feel like that does a disservice to Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I, I don't really like the Harry Potter books that much. Like I quit reading them when I was a kid because like my attention span was not going to make it through the Order of the Phoenix. But this has like I mean you're talking about the turrets, you're talking about all yeah. these things. There looks like there are hidden rooms everywhere. Oh, I mean the whole thing is just every idea is just executed without thought whatsoever to how it relates to any other idea. Okay, so now the thing that kills me about these McMansions that I'm still trying to figure out and you can hopefully help me is, you know, it's one thing to be like, okay, I got a billion dollars and I can do whatever I want, right? Okay, but then your friends are going to show up. And I mean, are their friends just like don't know what they're doing or is it like you know it's like you know your friend comes to your house i mean my friends come to the house because oh i love that or oh what what like or you know what i mean like what i mean the thing is is that's just basic politeness too to just be like what a lovely home when you come to someone's home i know but like like, millions of dollars but But then they go behind their back and are just like (laughs) yeah but they're friends i mean your friend like do these people not have friends to be like you know what people have friends Is I think they have theory? people. I mean, have you seen the Real Housewives? Yeah, well, well, it's just like they're, I don't think they're that's friends. Accurate, okay, I, they're, they're just like they're friends. I mean, like there were rich people I knew growing up, and like they actually just hated everyone, and like hanging out with them was just like them talking crap about everyone else. And I was just like, is this what it's like to have money? You're well, just like a misanthropic. Like, I mean, that's why they moved to the middle of nowhere so they don't have to see anyone. I think oh, there's just like hilarious. something vaguely like antisocial with well, having so much money. Apparently, someone sent me a DM on Twitter that, like, they were in the neighborhood when that house was going up. First of all, they tore down, like, a much cooler house to build this house. And then they tore down the house next to it for the construction vehicles to be able to park. Wow. So it's just, like, truly, like, screw you, I got mine. So this was, like, totally planned to be this ugly. Oh, yeah. That's what is No, it's not even, like, if it was just, like, because it kind of does look like a house that just had many unfortunate additions. Right. But, no, it was conceived to be, like, this hodgepodge, mishmashed, pastiche hellhole. Uh, Okay, you just blew my mind. Because I I was convinced that this was maybe, like, something that she, like, changed. No. Transformed. No. She tore down two houses to build this super stupid ugly house. So you're saying those two staircases were meant to be like that? Oh, yeah. Prom stairs. Prom stairs. I mean, you say, and the other one is mall door. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, the mall door at the bottom. I mean, look at that. That is the entrance to Forever 21. Right? You know, that's why I'm saying it's like, it looks like, or even a dorm building or something. Yeah. Like, it just, it sort it's of like seems so It's like a literal, so like, an egress door. Right. You know, so, so 
Does this tell us about the markers of the quote-unquote elite? I mean, is what they actually I like... mean, it's all about just amassing different symbols together that show, hey, I have lots of money. So I mean, and so in this case, this is true. Like, I mean, the dual staircases, I mean, that is such a obvious symbol of wealth. I mean, what is that movie? Like, Gone with the Wind? And yeah, the, I mean, Scarlett like O'Hara staircase, super right? super expensive. I mean, and these, those were like the elite, and they're like, those are not good people. Uh, it really is all just enshrined, first of all, in, like you said, it's a colonial aesthetic, and it's an aesthetic of domination, but it's also a, an aesthetic of, of power, and they borrow elements from architecture that is is meant to evoke power. First of all, the scale of the houses are so large that you feel small in comparison, and that is right. absolutely on purpose. Second of all, like entrances, for example, like the two-story entrance and, and things like that, I mean, that's borrowed from... Lawyer firms, law firms, and banks. Right. I mean, monumental architecture is essentially just borrowed for its like connotative properties to uh, and applied to these to, to these houses in order to communicate like aesthetics of power. Um, and so the stone stone is another one. Like stone is, I mean, it's semiotics. Like yep. right. The semiotics of stone is like of like the bulwark of the thing that keeps others away. Like it's of the fort. Right. It's of the strong and the the mighty and the dominant and the the castle, for so to speak. And so the fact that this house is a quarter stone is not surprising. And the parts that are less private are most certainly like more filled with stone. As you can see, like on the side of the house here, the columns are stone. The stone mm -hmm. extends up to the columns because that part of the house is like view viewable by other other people. Right. And then the front wall is, of course, the front of the house is actually just bulwarked by this huge stone wall that they wanted to make taller so that you couldn't even see the house at all. I mean, obviously, there's like a dual meaning of security and power that comes right. through this. So now what does it mean that, you know, I feel like banks nowadays have much more transparent architecture and much more sort of open. That's so modern, ironic, too. Right? It's like the banks have gone the way of like transparency and being quote unquote looking open. I mean, that's that probably just open. a reaction to the Great Recession, honestly, where like banks did some shady stuff behind everyone's back and now they have to be like, we're good again. That's like, right. Wells Fargo is like the epitome of that. Like, I mean, they're continue to do, they continue to just do like the shadiest stuff. And like all their new banks are just like super sparkling, neo modern. And it's just like. So, what does that tell us about our culture that the banks are like. Projecting images of transparency. And it's just and an the, image, though, because right. they're not. Right, it is an image, yeah. absolutely. But I'm saying, but but, but I elites, mean, there is any the elite. It doesn't even have, you know, they're why not should even they? pretending. They don't even. I mean, does Donald Trump pretend? He does not pretend. There's your answer. I mean, rich people like the at these this level of richness, like unless they're somehow involved in the arts in some way, uh, not even like as philanthropists, but like unless like someone they know is like. You know, rich people who, like, continue, like, I would say, like, the field of architecture and hire, like, rich architects to, like, build their houses and, like, continue to do that, which is so few of them, frankly, mm -hmm. because of the McMansion. So did you expect Betsy DeVos to write you? Uh, no, but if she did, I would just, like, print it out and put it on my wall. I put it on my refrigerator next to my, uh, like, final report card. And uh, it would feel like a victory. Yeah. I hate that woman. She's like literally the Marie Antoinette of the moment, though, where like all of us are just like drowning in debt. We're all miserable. Like we can't like start our lives. And she's just like, I have like 10 fucking boats. Well, one of the yachts almost got away. That was registered in the Cayman Islands so she wouldn't have to pay taxes on it in this country. Like, this is an evil woman we're talking about, man. This is literally like, let them eat cake, the woman. 
And then, like, of course, her brother just, like, you know, like, basically sells mercenaries. It's just, like, we're not talking about nice people here. We're not talking about people who can be given the benefit of the doubt. So now, do you think, Kate, there's any chance that in 100 years, people are going to look back at McMansions and think they were awesome? The, the clearest, like, analogy or, like, parallel in history, I would say, is, like, Queen Anne, where everyone hated Queen Anne houses for, like, 80 years. Like, for they, so many, like... Uh, like eclectic style buildings were torn down uh, mm-hmm. all throughout the 20th century. I mean, in the 50s, like there was the rhetoric that that's where witches live. Like it's like it was really really yeah. I mean, the haunted house is a Queen Anne Victorian house, right? And it's just like I mean, it was like considered to be like evil and dirty. Uh, in in the face of modernism, it's almost like some builders spread that rumor to tear them down. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're also like tinder boxes. A lot of them, unfortunately. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, I think so. I don't know. McMansions, I feel like there's an interesting, like, historical, like, sociological study of them that both myself and I'm sure other people academically are undertaking. Uh, the big debate about is, like, what they mean and where they fit into, like, architectural history. And so, for example, like, in the Field, Gu- a field Guide to American Houses, mm-hmm. which is uh, the classic guide to American houses, uh, which is by Virginia McAllister, like, McMansions are in... The latest edition from 2013. And how are they classified? They're called Millennium Mansions. Millennium Mansions. That I mean, sounds really positive. Yeah, I think it was polite. Uh, uh, she says, I mean, the book is neutral. It doesn't take a political view on like any architectural style. Uh, so, and and I think it's just like some hi- some history, like gu- this is a field guide. So right. of course it would probably be that way. Like field guides to trees don't say that the sycamore is the best tree and all the other trees can suck it. Uh, but so, maybe it should. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's there's some like criticism in there. I would say as far as like the the man and it talks about like the overblown proportions. It's like a really actually kind of neat historical summary. It's yeah. like the first one I've seen in like a finished establishment guide to architecture. Right. I think that they will be included. Whether or not they'll be praised, I mean, only time will tell. You never know like how people react to the past. That was Kate Wagner, McMansion Hell herself. So we have Seth Rodney, hyperallergic editor and critic in the studio. Hi, Seth. Hey, what's going on? So you're going to join us for some headlines, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Sao Paulo Biennial. Sound good? Sounds great. Great. So let's get started. That eerie quiet is what could be heard by people who witnessed the devastating fire that ripped through the National Museum of Brazil in Rio de Janeiro on September 2nd. Founded in 1818, the museum is the oldest scientific institution in Brazil, and it housed the oldest human fossil in existence in the Americas. Writing for Hyperallergic, Marian Simios reports that the museum lost 90% of its collection of 20 million artifacts including dinosaur fossils, the oldest Egyptian collection in the Americas, and the largest collection of that kind in Latin America. And in fact, um, it's such a devastating loss at the opening conversation of the biennial, on which uh, Gabriel Perez Barrero, the main, their lead curator, described what the biennial was about. 
Ed, the person sitting to his left, Eduardo Saron, who's the vice president of the board of directors of the um, Biennial Foundation, almost broke down when he described the kind of loss that he felt in the museum not being there, not being available for him to take his son to. And yeah. when he talked about his eight-year-old son losing that kind of access to that very crucial material heritage, he right. had a moment where he, he got emotional. Well, I mean, you could understand why. I mean, somebody in one of the news articles at the time had mentioned that it was like losing the Metropolitan Museum. You know, and the idea of this huge storehouse of memory, right? And, you know, one of the things that I think people are really mourning is not only the Egyptian collection, which is obviously, you know, is the oldest in the Americas, the largest in Latin America, but there were many recordings of extinct or endangered indigenous languages in that museum that are now lost forever. And I mean, just the idea of that. And the building itself, of course, has a historical significance because it was once home to the Portuguese royal family. So now we're just going to listen to the, this one Brazilian scholar in Egyptology, Thais Rocha de Silva, who is studying at Oxford University and told CGTV about what was lost. We lost so many things in that museum. Uh, research, uh, heritage, uh, history of the country. It was just unbelievable. And I, I'm pretty sure the whole academic community is devastated now. Sadly, this wasn't the first time that the Brazilian national treasures were consumed by a roaring flames. In 1978, the Museum of Modern Art in Rio had lost works by Picasso, Dali, Miro, and other prominent Brazilian artists to a fire that broke out there. And then in 2009, a fire consumed the former apartment of artist Helio Otosica, where it destroyed what people were guessing was about $200 million worth of art. And the thing about this is it's not the only one. The BBC reported that in the last 10 years alone, fires have destroyed eight buildings in Brazil dedicated to science and the arts. In fact, I think one of the conversations that I was privy to, well, I should say one of the conversations I know I was privy to when I was in Brazil, was this conviction among several of the people that were native to um, Sao Paulo. A couple of them were the people on the PR team. They talked about how this issue of the government being unwilling to put up the funds to right. actually properly take care of public patrimony, to properly preserve not only the artifacts and art, but also the buildings in which they're housed is an ongoing issue. I mean, they were saying that the fire um, sprinklers weren't even working in the museum. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's 2018, and Brazil's literally one of the biggest economies and, you know, wealthiest nations in the world. So, I mean, not only that, in 2015, the Museum of the Portuguese Language caught on fire in Sao Paulo. Mm. And in February 2016, the Brazilian Film Archives lost 270 titles in its collection to another fire. Actually, we wondered by, when we were visiting the... Pinacoteca Museum. We wandered by the Museum of, of Portuguese Language, and it's a gorgeous building. It's yeah. just beautiful, but it, it was actually covered in a kind of um, netting, which um, I suppose has some, maybe. Yeah, yeah, which I suppose has something to do with either ongoing uh, renovations or repairs. 
It's unbelievable. And so one Brazilian journalist, Elaine Broom, who was at site at the museum when the flames were blazing, wrote a poetic piece in El Pais titled, Brazil has burned down and there's no water to put out the fire. Mm. She compared the tragedy of the country itself going up in flames because referring to the continuing economic and political crisis and of course, one of the biggest countries in the world. So, and a 21-year-old student, Lucas Santos, who's majoring in design at Pontifical Catholic University in Rio, spoke to our reporter who was there at the protests and offered his thoughts. He said, losing the museum wasn't an accident and it wasn't unexpected. It is the result of negligence that has been happening for a while now. It is very symbolic that this happened during election season. What infuriates me, he told our reporter, is that at this very moment, the authorities are all getting together to discuss a strategy for dealing with the public instead of just admitting to what happened. Mm. I keep asking myself, what is happening to my country? Mm. I mean, that's such a familiar phrase for mm. those of us in the U.S. too. It sadly mm. resonates with us. And deeply. so many places in the world, sadly. Mm. It, it's, I mean, a sad day to lose such a wonderful world museum. And so maybe it's a sign of the times, but art fairs are being forced to rethink their pricing and the way they do business too. Next year's Art Basel Art Fair in Switzerland will institute a new sliding scale pricing model, which will force larger galleries to pay more while allowing smaller galleries to pay a little less. So two thirds of participating galleries are expected to pay an average of 13% less while the remaining galleries are expected to pay about 4% more. Seems fair. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> And then, this is a bit of a fun story, a pair of ruby slippers worn by Judy Garland in her role as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz was recovered by the FBI after they were stolen 13 years ago from the Judy Garland Museum in Minneapolis. Of course, no one's been caught. <laughs> and nope. no one will be caught. <laughs> That's right. No place like home, right? This week, of course, is the 17th anniversary of the September 11th attacks and a new memorial to the victims of United Flight 93, which crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, has been unveiled. Called the Tower of Voices, it is a 93-foot-tall um, monument and contains wind-activated chimes constructed of polished aluminum tubes ranging 8 to 16 inches in diameter and approximately 5 to 10 feet in length. So we thought we'd give you a little um, taste of it. You're going to hear a simulated recording that tells you what visitors might expect. Okay, we're back with Seth in the studio. So Seth, how is Sao Paulo? Sao Paulo is actually the kind of town that five days is not enough time to get to know. It has a thriving art scene. It has a brilliant museum scene. I got to visit a few of them. The famous one, MASP, which is the Museum of Sao Paulo, it was gorgeous. It has a, this amazing permanent display, which has artworks, mostly paintings, in the top floor, laid out on what are essentially glass dividers, so that you walk into a room and it's just a kind of sea of floating art pieces, a range of them from, uh, I think I saw some dating back to the 15th century perhaps, all the way up to uh, the 20th century. It's just a gorgeous layout. I, I heard that they had recently reinstalled this, but I'd never actually witnessed it before I was in Sao Paulo last week. 
I was very impressed by that. I was also very impressed by the Pinacoteca Museum, which is another sort of survey museum. It has a great deal of Brazilian art from the 20th century, but also moves into um, older work in the upstairs galleries. I was just impressed by how beautifully everything was laid out and how much room the curators had given the work to breathe. It does consistently strike me when I travel abroad and I come back to the U.S., how in many museums outside of the U.S., there's a sense of like, there's a parallel to the sort of design conviction that the more white space you have mm -hmm. on a page, the easier it is to actually take in information. Right. There's a similar aesthetic working huh. in a lot of museums I've visited outside of the U.S. where the operating principle seems to be that the more sort of empty space we have, the more we're actually able to engage with the work that's within that space. Right. And I found that to be the case in the museums and galleries I visited in Sao Paulo. So the experience was just, uh, time after time, it was engaging and it just made me feel good. So the Sao Paulo Museum of Art you mentioned was actually designed by Lina Bobardi. Ah. And she's also the one responsible for those displays. Mm. And I just want to mention that back in 2016, uh, Elisa Wacalmino, our editor, who's based in Los Angeles now, she wrote about the installation. And she had mentioned at the time that after 20 years, the museum had rehung its paintings in the main gallery, which ranged from European medieval art to today, mm. as Bobardi had them. Mm. Not on walls, but in the middle of the room, anchored in sheets of glass that lock into cement pedestals. As such, the paintings appear to float weightlessly, much like her home. Mm -hmm. And her home, of course, has been renovated and is open to the public again. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's an accurate description of how they sort of appeared in the gallery? Absolutely, it is. And um, it, it felt, it made me actually feel a little bit like a young, a young man. The first time I entered a, muse a museum of art, um, when I was 17, I, I took a class trip to visit MoMA, a museum of modern art here in New York. And I was just kind of astonished by what I saw. And similarly, at um, MASP, I was kind of astonished walking into this room to see these sort of paintings just sort of ethereally just floating across the landscape in front of me. And then it made me want to dive in and run around and, and actually did this. I, I played this game with myself where I see if I could guess which painter was which. And and I got a lot of stuff right, so I've been paying attention. So the labels are on the back, right? That is correct, yeah. Well, so you got to run around and see oh, what's on the back. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so you don't check. see it together. It's, right. it's great. So now let's talk about the biennial. So how is it? What were some of your initial impressions? Well, I had this conversation actually with Gabriel Perez Burroughs. He's the director, ultimately the, the head curator of the Biennial, even though he had a team of artist curators he was working <laughs> with. His partner, who I am friends with, um, Itziar, she and I had a conversation and she talked about how Gabriel firmly believes in the ability or rather the necessity for art to sometimes fail. Yeah. That art doesn't always carry through on the sort of promises that we presume it should hmm. and I felt that in that space I felt myself walking through spaces where 
those individually curated sections mm -hmm. sometimes just didn't work. They failed right. for me. I mean, they may not fail for everyone else, but they certainly failed for me. But there were a couple of sections which were so lovely and lyrical and ultimately uplifting mm -hmm. that I felt like the biennial still holds up. It's still a, a thing that is worth seeing, worth spending time with. And in the interview that I did with Gabriel, we talked a bit about the sort of approach that he took in undergirding the biennial with these this sort of infrastructure, this conceptual infrastructure of practices of attention. And that goes into the time when we actually first met each other, which was at one of these practi attentional practices in mm. New York City. So we talk about that in the interview. Please stay tuned for that. So now, Sao Paulo Biennial, for those who don't know, is the second oldest art biennial in the world. Now, was this an experience that you felt like, because, you know, some of us have biennial fatigue, you know? I mean, I think it's a thing. Do you know? It's sort of like they're starting to, you go in, it's the same, oh, look, another project by so-and-so, yeah. -so, another project. Did it feel like that at all, or was it very rooted in the local? I mean, how would you describe it? It felt very different from a lot of the other biennials I've attended. So I've attended the Venice Biennial, I've attended the Sharjah Biennial, and Jamaica Biennial, actually. And here's how I think among that rather random list of biennials, Sao Paulo Biennial distinguishes itself. It has the, the building in which the biennial is housed is one location in which you can sort of wander about, but it's one discrete location as opposed to these other places. Right. Um, I think Venice and, and Sharjah and Jamaica even, they're multi-sided. So you do a lot of traveling around town. Here, it feels like you're able to actually walk the biennial in a day. And what I was surprised wow, by... Wow, that's rare nowadays, isn't it? It's rare. What I was surprised by was that I could actually get it all in my head in one day. Like I thought that I would sort of sort of map things out and, and, and get a vague sense of the lay of the land on the first day. Mm -hmm. But I walked the entire banyan and I thought, oh, okay, I kind of got a sense of what is here. I, mm -hmm. I, I know it. So the next day when I went back, I wasn't surprised by any of the work that I'd seen the day before. And what that allowed me to do is to spend more time with the works that I found particularly enthralling, and I Got enjoyed it. that. That's awesome. So now, do you want to talk about one or two works that you want to share with people? Absolutely. There's one piece, it's actually an installation um, by Alejandro Corujera. It's called, I Give You a Sphere of Golden Light. And it's a gorgeous installation which takes up the space of this sort of mezzanine between the first and third floor of the biennial building. There's a kind of set of wooden, I guess, arcs on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, they're colored goldenrod, maroon, blue. And you just create this sort of design element uh, along the floor. But then you continue along that, and he's laid down, I think, I think what looks like a pine floor. It's just a beautiful, variegated wood um, patina. And you continue along the installation, and you see copper inlaid in the floor mm. uh, like a little sort of almost mini maze and there are a few sort of abstract watercolors along the walls but then you continue further on into the installation and you encounter this alleged golden sphere which is actually a series of kind of curved walls so I found myself doing this thing where I walked along and through the walls and I could sort of peek out to one side and see someone in the far end and I said that person could sort of see me too and it was I, the person I encountered was a photographer so it was kind of like 
playing this impromptu game of hide and seek with mm -hmm. people is what you end up doing in the installation. But it's so lovely and the wood is so sort of, I always feel good in environments where there's wood. I think there's something about right. having this sort of natural element around me that always makes me feel in some ways protected. And I mean, the that. way you described it sounded embracing almost. Yes, absolutely. That's it's the like word a whole it. environment. Yeah, I love yeah, that piece. That's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. So now it sounds more of a formalist exploration or was it about the materiality? What was it? I think it was very formalist, but that's the thing. Is that I am not one of those people who tends to be really powerfully drawn to formalist mm -hmm. work. I like work that has like some political and social heft to it. But here, there is something so, I guess, lovely about it. There's something about the exploration that he made mm. through these materials that just felt, and I know this word can be overused, but it felt childlike. It felt like I am just going to set out these things in the world because they look beautiful to me. That's and nice. to, to, to embrace that fully, I think, is a kind of brave act. Yeah, it's beautiful. So now is there a second artist you want us to discuss? Indeed. And I'm not sure I'm going to get this artist's name pronounced correctly, but I think it's Roderick Heidebrink or Heidebrink. And the piece is called The Living Room. What's great about The Living Room is it's a video staged in this darkened hall in the, um, I think, in the third floor of the biennial. What's great about Living Room, which was done in 2011, is that the video starts out with a very sort of placid shot. It's a slow pan across this, essentially what is a living room, but it's, it's, you get the sense that it's an entire apartment. It's, it's a like flat. a pristine middle class kind of Precisely. living room. Yes, yes. With the, with the lovely chairs in the corner. Very family. Um, yes, yeah. quite. Uh, f uh, framed photographs on the bookcase, a lovely uh, dining room table that with a you know, tablecloth and placemats. And you hear a sort of creaking sound. You think, oh, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what that's about. And then you see a shot of a pair of ropes going taut. And then you hear more creaking. And then the next thing you know, you see tree branches. And then there's more creaking and inevitably there's a kind of slow destruction of mm. that living space. And you realize what they've done is they've hooked up these ropes to a tree on the other side of the living space and they're slowly dragging that tree. Literally, they are dragging nature into the place that is not natural, into the right. place that is um, human-made. We should have said spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I, but, you know, you can watch this happen over and over again and it's still kind of fascinating. Right. It's gorgeous. It's just, and there's something about... And it, it, there's, there's a way in which it points to kind of coming, we, know, we who are rational know this is a coming ecological disaster. There's a way in which this work points towards that and says, no, 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 nature's going to reassert itself. Like right. we will have this pristine space that we've made for ourselves only for a time. Wow. That sounds beautiful. It's fantastic. Well, thank you, Seth. And I'm sure people will um, read your review when it comes out in the next week or so. Yes, I'm looking forward to writing it. And I also would like people to give a listen to the interview I have with Great. Gabriel Perez Barrero. I think that will be of equal interest. This week, I want to send a special thanks to Althea Soli-Cole for providing the music to this week's episode. 
I'm Hrog Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.